Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and I'm here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hey, Matt, here we are. Now, we talked the other day about the fact that we do the same introduction every time, <laughs> but I think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate right. because I am here and I am your friend, and yes. uh, this is the science of psychotherapy. But just in case anybody's bored with the introductions, I've just changed it. So there you oh, go. There you go. <laughs> give, well, thank- give it another flurry. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, Richard. Um, we are off to the United States once again. We're often going to the United States. There's so many interesting people over there. And today we're going to talk to Sophie Schauman. And uh, she is involved in children and parents and family therapy and, and sensitive children and a whole range of things. And she contacted us, which, by the way, if you've got something interesting that you're doing in psychotherapy, please contact us. We'd love to have a chat with you. Absolutely. And and we do this. And also, if you've got something that you want to write, uh, the the magazine is very keen to encourage and support and and publish people who've, again, got something to say. So that's right. And so we, we, Sophie, let us know. And then we went and had a look at her website. We had a look at some of the stuff uh, that she's doing. Uh, And what we'll be talking about, we'll talk a bit more about at the end. You have to listen to the end because there's a special (laughs) gift at the end, but she's got a great course. Yes. uh, that she's that she's put together, which is a product of the work she's been doing in play therapy, uh, in and with with kids, uh, mm-hmm. and she works with younger kids, and um, the synergistic play therapy that, that that we've talked about before with uh, Lisa Dion. So lots of connections, and it was just somebody really natural to get on the show. Yeah, fantastic. Now, look, if you do uh, enjoy what we're doing here at the Science of Psychotherapy, you can support us by jumping onto the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. And become a member and, and join the tribe there. Or simply jump onto our YouTube channel. If you're listening to this on one of the podcast uh, streams, you can also see us on YouTube. Um, subscribe there. Make some comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate your engagement there as well. So there's just heaps of stuff everywhere and we're going to increase the amount of stuff we've got by going and talking to Sophie Schauerman. Sophie Schauerman, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me here in Um, Colorado. Oh, yes, you're in Colorado. So uh, yeah. it's Richard here. I'm in Sydney, Matt in Brisbane. So again, all around the world thing. Uh, it, it was so great uh, to get to know about you. And uh, I was saying to you uh, earlier, and as I say to people, let us know you exist so that, yes. so that we can join in. And we got some information about you. We thought, oh, this this woman's great. So uh, we've we've mentioned it a little bit. You work play therapy. You work with kids. Uh how about we just hand it over to you for a, for a moment or two? Tell us a bit about your feelings of where you've got to and what got you into this area of, of practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been a sensitive person. I've been babysitting since I was old enough to babysit. So I've always found myself in a space with children and holding space for them. Um, when I went to undergraduate university in Boston at Tufts University, I immediately fell into 
the child development department and the clinical psychology department kind of together. And that included working at a lab school where I was actually asked to observe children. Um, so despite trying to fight against this path many times, like, I don't want to be a therapist. I don't want to like sit and hold that space all day. I keep coming back again and again to this is absolutely what I'm meant to be doing. Um, and eventually that path got me to the School of Social Work because again, still I was thinking, well, at least if I do social work, there's a doorway out. I could do policy. I could get all these other different jobs. And once again, um, found my way back to the knowing that I would be sitting with clients as a therapist. Um, and actually in my second year at grad school, I was placed in a practicum at a school where I was the only mental health professional and I had never worked with young kids therapeutically. All of my other clinical experience had been in day programs with adults um, and then teens. And so I actually Googled how to do therapy with kids and I found play therapy was a pretty good option. There's a lot of research decades on it. And then I Googled, where do you learn play therapy in Colorado? And I found myself at the Play Therapy Institute in Boulder. Um, that is Lisa Dion's organization, the creator of Synergetic Play Therapy. Um, and I did a six-day intensive. All the other therapists there had been in the field and they were coming to learn Synergetic Play Therapy. I had never been in the playroom. Um, and so I was watched through a one-way mirror by the supervisors and the other therapists the first time I stepped into the playroom with a child. And over those six days, um, I saw an eight-year-old boy go from an incredibly disempowered state, hunched over, like in the corner, to like banging a drum and actually looking at the one-way mirror and making muscles. He didn't know he was being watched. Um, and... There was really no looking back since I actually, um, I still, who was my supervisor then, one of my greatest mentors, who was originally the supervisor of Lisa Dion, um, she's still my consultant and I'm just so grateful for those foundations and then did some community work um, in different types of agencies, but eventually found my way to private practice here in Denver. Uh, That's fantastic. And you'll be pleased to know that Lisa's a, a very good friend of ours with the uh, Sides of Psychotherapy. We've talked with her often and, and uh, uh, been fortunate enough to share some some lovely social dinners together. So, uh, And she's great. We're a great supporter of uh, of her. And, and she's, you know, written some lovely things for us as well. So, you know, we're in your company. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Now, and so now with, with play therapy, and although we have, you know, talked to Lisa and and, and things, to other people, uh, we have uh, Catherine, oh, I can't pronounce her name, probably Alesnowicz, in in Australia, but doing play therapy, what it becomes a very individual thing as well for the practitioner because there's there's that interaction. And you mentioned just briefly as you came in this highly sensitive child, which is something that uh, is used. There's different language for it in different places, but I think everybody understands the term. So I think there's going to be some special stuff with you. Can you talk to us a little bit about how then you synergized? synergistic play therapy into uh, Sophie. Yeah, in this, I am just feeling a lot of gratitude for Lisa. I can't actually imagine the path without the foundation that she created and the template um, because I wasn't really wanting to learn 
a strict therapy modality. For example, when I learned EMDR, it was really hard to stick to because it's as, as effective as it is, it's such a standard protocol. It was hard for me to feel like me. Um, but with least, and of course, EMDR is a really important part of my practice and it comes into the synergetic play therapy. But what Lisa did for me is one of the number one tenets is finding your authenticity and congruency as a therapist. So no matter what, if I'm not being true, it's not working. Um, and so I feel so much permission in having the model of play therapy from the pioneers like Gary Landreth and Virginia Axline um, that were basically taking the approach that if you follow a child's lead and give them attunement and attention, they will naturally move towards healing. Um, and that alone is just like, I mean, I just see children settle into growth naturally because they have a capacity to grow and heal. Um, but with the synergetic play therapy model, I, I felt permission to always pay attention to if I was showing up in a way that wasn't totally true. Um, and the more that I stayed grounded in really having authentic reactions to children's, um, to what they were bringing, um, the more safe relationship I found unfold and then more healing grew. Um, yeah, th I, I'm wondering if that makes sense or. Absolutely. Oh, no, it's brilliant. And, Wonderful. Th and this is what we're encouraging people all the time to do. We we learn principles and um, and then we need to then take those principles, but integrate it into, like, like you say, your authentic self, which includes your intuition and to be able to be very uh, yeah, organic and flexible um, in our approach and not to be too rigid. I, I get totally what mm. you're saying about EMDR. Yes. And, and also, Matt, isn't it, that, that thing of, of attuning to the client? I mean, uh, yes, of course. attuning to yourself and attuning to them, this is something that, that I think play therapy brings out a lot. Yeah. yeah. I may yeah. even, I could give an example of where this congruency piece showed up yesterday um, with a four and a half year old. Um, she got, she was in the waiting room and she, she said, oh no, I left my stuffy, whatever the stuffy's name was in the car. And immediately the dad and I went into anxiety. I'm not sure why, looking back, I can see why, but, and we both gave different answers to why we couldn't go to the car. The dad said, well, if I go to the car and get the stuffy, then there, then there's not going to be any time left in the session. And I said some, I, I, who knows what I said because I was in a dysregulated state, but whatever it was, wasn't quite true. And when we got to the play therapy room, the child said like, I was, con she didn't um, verbalize this until I supported her in that, but she was confused. She just kept on sort of fixating on what that doesn't make sense to me. Like if my dad went to go get the stuffy he'd be back in five minutes because I'll talk about the highly sensitive child in a moment. She has that gifted, sensitive trait. She's really, it's clicking in her brain that that literally doesn't make sense. Are you, you're the grownups? Like what you're telling me doesn't make sense. And for me, and, and I was able to have a really honest moment with her where I first got to connect with myself and ask myself, why did I have so much resistance to go getting the stuffy? And I was able to say, well, to be honest, two things happened. One, I was taking care of your dad and I didn't want him to be cold because it was freezing temperatures yesterday. So then I'm modeling like what this caretaker part is, which is something that she and her family are working with, the part that care takes. And then I also said, and like when we're in our sessions, we get to a space where we're really connected 
about 10 or 15 minutes into the session. And I didn't want your dad to open the door right then and interrupt because this is the time where we get to be in that connection. And you could see like her whole body settled. Hmm. And it could, because it made sense. The boundary made sense. She wasn't feeling isolated in her confusion of why we're giving the boundary. Um, And then I was also able to talk to the dad after the session and explain what was happening in that moment and ask him what his experience was and talk about congruency. So it seems so simple, but paying attention to, am I actually knowing what I feel and then saying what I feel and mean and the impact that that has on a child I think is really important in, in healthy relationship building. So so in hindsight, how do you think you could have set yourself up um, better so that you weren't dysregulated at the start? I think that that had to happen because, right. that's, because that's what's happening in the family system is like mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing and taking care of each other and trying to make sure it all goes okay and then not actually um, slowing down. And well, first of all, thinking about if, there was space to meet her desire because it might've been okay to like pause and go get the stuffy if she really wanted to show me. And then also just explaining to her why, instead of be like in an, uh, in the adult brain where you can explain here's, I know why I'm setting the boundary and here's why. And I just think that would have provided more emotional safety for her. Yeah. That's real. That's a really good uh, comment in, in response. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite, Fascinating. Um, where Matt and I both have had uh, uh, sort of careers and activities in in the performing arts, a musician. I was an actor for a long time, and I get a lot of stuff. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I talk about it too much, but I did do a workshop that, that went very well. Was almost everything I know in psychotherapy I learned in acting school. Uh, because acting school is about engaging with the, the human experience within you and, uh, you know, across the space into personal neurobiology is what we do on stage, moment-to-moment responses. And one of the things that really amazed me, and, and I can't remember the actor it was at the, uh, at the time, I'll remember it, I'll remember it tomorrow, I'll, I'll ring you up at 2 o'clock in the morning and, and tell you. But he was saying it was so odd, he was going on stage and this is completely uh, comparable to what you were talking about. I was going on stage and my job was to say my lines and you know do these particular props and, and so on and so forth. And I had this terribly itchy nose and I just kept avoiding itching the nose. Anyway, I came off afterwards and the director said to me, what were you doing in the beginning of, of you know, the, that scene? You were uncomfortable, you were doing... And I said, I had an itchy nose. And the director said to me, well, scratch it, you idiot. Um, <laughs> you said it, scratch it. Yeah, it's the... Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. Letting ourselves be natural. And 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 it was uh, that flow. And it was just beautiful hearing you going through and the 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 system within you. And I think a lot of therapists uh, struggle with this, of what should I be doing now instead of what feels right to be doing now and I think that your your story example there was just such a a beautiful example of this. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I don't know if any other therapists have this experience, but one of my internal processes that's happened a few times is I am so thirsty right now, and I did I forgot to get water. Would it be most authentic to pause and say I need to go get some water, or just stay present with the client? Um, I don't know. Have you ever had that? Oh God, yes. Uh, the mad, uh, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm actually. It's interesting 
being older because the older I've got in the things, the more it doesn't matter. It's just old. That's just funny old, uh, the funny old fella. Uh, so maybe there's a bit of bit of sort of social permission there to be uh, to be less capable. Like sometimes I, you know, I have to go to the bathroom and I say, look, I know things are going very well at the moment. Perhaps if you just think about that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> and there are like sometimes it's like the, that moment where, and can I still stay connected to myself and like hold this client's needs beyond my own in a way that's authentic. Like, I think it's a gray area. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think too, the older I've got, you know, the, I think the more relaxed I've become, yeah. um, which is very good therapeutically for the client and myself. And, you know, and because, you know, I think when I was young, you know, it was all about holding the space, you know, and, and I had to try very, you know, be very diligent to hold the space correctly. And then as, yeah, as I get older, just relax a lot more and just realize that there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that I don't need to fret about um, in, in, you know, holding the space. Uh, yeah. You know, there's certain circumstances, of course, when um, it's very critical that maybe I don't go and get a glass of water right now because I really need to, you know, yeah. be paying full attention. But yes, there's a difference between need and timing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. But in the in the sense, I just uh, listening to what you're you're, you're saying there uh, so beautifully. The 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 structures of EM, EMDR and and it always frustrates me because of course EMDR emerged out of a natural behavior. Mm. Uh, Francine Shapiro just found she did that. And so we tend to structurize things and then um, do it. So you had this, but forgetting the, the 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 nature, whether it's EMDR or CBT or any of the, the, the methodologies, this, this structural uh, uh, constraints, and then this uh, more open uh, framework of play. Can you talk to us a little bit about how much you know some of the, the the aspects of how you use play therapy to, uh, and maybe there's another case in there that that goes. So people get an idea of the different approach, the different mindsets you have to have, perhaps uh, for play therapy, as different from a, a more structured therapy. Yeah, I think with anything, it's presence. And something that was difficult for me with EMDR, just to start there, is. I was, I also hold space for adult women. Um, I'm a therapist for adult women. And I, when I took the EMDR training, I realized I had been using creative interventions that were just coming from my presence that were really similar to EMDR by mm -hmm. taking clients that I was with into meditation to younger parts of themselves and kind of going back there and looking at what the beliefs were associated. And, and that was just coming from being present and trying to meet what I felt like was needed when we slowed down and went inside. And so um, so yeah, it was really helpful to have the EMDR model. And, but then also it was sometimes difficult to think I had to follow a rule book when what I was doing naturally allowed me to just feel really relaxed. Um, and so with play therapy, sort of the same thing, like I, I, it's what I was doing since I was 10 and I was nannying the two-year-old for the summer down the road. Like I, I was just being with a child and being myself and being in my struggles, like in my confusions, knowing that that was probably part of the developmental stage that child that I was with was going through because that's part of the energetic exchange that's happening. Um, so like I said, this energetic play therapy model was really good for me to feel like I could bring that authenticity in. Um, I like also bringing in awareness of the nervous system dysregulation 
um, that Lisa talks a lot about. Um, and then I think what I've brought um, even more to, to my practice, because it's true for me, is just always focusing on deep soulful connection. I really, um, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung. I even started a doctorate program at Pacifica, which ended up not, um, it was an authentic choice to leave that to tend to my family. But like, I really like Carl Jung and individuation and, um, and that kind of thing. And there's a quote, learn all the therapies, study all the theories, but when you meet another human soul, just be another human soul. And for me, like in being with children in the playroom, that's my number one priority is just to see them and to be with them and to be in a space of vulnerability and connection to them too, so that they can really feel that they're not alone in whatever they're going through. Um, and maybe at this point I could share an example of how this, of how this might look. Um, I'm thinking and sort of in what rooted rhythm therapy, which is my practice, that's um, really based on the belief that for children to thrive, they need to feel space to be rooted in their own rhythm. And in order for them to do that, they need support from their parents to see them and attune to them and feel into what their rhythm might be. And in order for a parent to be able to do that, they have to be connected to themselves and know what their own rhythm feels like and give themselves permission to, to feel that. Um, so an example of how this all sort of comes together, just, and it, and it comes in so many different ways, like all the, just imagine all the different types of children and all their developmental stages and what stuck parts they're bringing in. But um, one example I'm thinking of was a six-year-old boy who I was working with and he had had the experience um, at a Catholic preschool where he, and this is not to say that all Catholic preschools offer this experience, but for him, he had had a moment where he was really, really, really shamed for what bringing what he thought was an authentic expression. And what that resulted in was really low self-esteem, anxiety, like not wanting to show up in his authentic self again. Um, he is for sure a highly sensitive child, which I can describe um, what that actually means in the research in a moment. But his mom was also a highly sensitive person and layered on top. So she was feeling the impact of this and having an experience of guilt that she even ever sent him there. Um, and then on top of that, they, um, the mom and this child together had experienced, had experienced really significant birth trauma. So there was a reason for major anxious attachment between them. So all of those layers together, it's very complex. Um, not to mention, you know, meeting dad and little brother I actually eventually ended up working with, I think the whole family between parent coaching and individual therapy and child therapy uh, after a few years. Um, um, so, but so this child, he came into the playroom and in my work, I really try to take children through a process over eight sessions. That's something I learned through synergetic play therapy, because I ultimately want to support their parents in being the attachment, the safe attachment. So we try to do the movement of trauma through the telling of the story with play therapy and the relational healing and the being the bridge between their psyches and their parents when I'm sharing themes of the sessions in those eight sessions. So in his initial eight sessions, the amount of shame in the room was palpable. Like everything was wrong. Everyone was bad. Everything was shameful. I was shameful. It was, I mean, I, my heart starts to beat and I get kind of like 
sweaty when I think about it because it was really, really intense. And I'm for shame is a difficult experience to sit with in my in my humaning experience and in supporting other clients. So as as this child learned that I wasn't going to turn away from him in his experience of shame, so he wouldn't be isolated in it. He really processed a lot. Um, and just hanging out with him in it and naming what was happening and letting him know verbally and non-verbally that I was there with him, even though it felt really intense. He also played out the experience of being stuck in the birth canal. It's like incredible. I never said, show me what your birth was like, but he found the play tunnel and got stuck in it and had th- and was throwing things, like had me throwing things at him. Um, yeah. And, um, and by the end of that, those eight sessions, he was just like in his being and in his creativity. And the last session was like creating art and singing. It was like, wow, we're here together. Um, Mm. and then, and then, yeah, I know this is sort of a long story, but it keeps going. No, it's fantastic. Keep Um, going, please. Yeah. And so meanwhile, his parents were really taking in all of these new, um, tools around parenting and understanding like how to offer boundaries to the sensitive child without shaming, even though they had been taught the opposite, um, how to, how to hold this child when he was moving through waves of intensity, because that is part of the highly sensitive child trait is kids, people, highly sensitive people. They just take more in and hold on to it for longer. Like literally the brain lights up more when they look at positive images of birthday cakes and puppies and negative images negative images of snakes and car crashes, the brain lights up and stays lit up for longer. And so if you have that type of personality where your brain is functioning like that, or your child does, there's just a reality that sometimes the feelings will be big and they have to be met. And especially for children, um, they need to feel like they're not alone in that so that they can learn how to do it on their own first with the support of a caregiver. So parents were learning a lot. This child was feeling really confident. Um, And then after that process, the mom decided that she wanted to um, do some EMDR because she felt like there was still some charged moments where it was her stuff. And she hadn't fully individuated into who she really is, like, you know, processing her family of origin and deciding what she really wanted for her family of creation. So she really took it upon herself to to do that work and was able to go back into her childhood where there were multiple instances of like very blatantly being shamed for having an expression. Um, So we did EMDR with that. And I mean, without sharing too many details, this woman is incredible. She like, she's now in the field herself um, doing cutting edge work and it was incredible. It started with the child and I, and I, and I kept saying to her, like, how brave is your child for vulnerably bringing his parts here and being the leader in the healing? Um, just end of that story. There's some other parts too. Eventually I saw the little brother that had more of a sensory processing thing happening, but, um, I never once said to the child, like, this is the space where we will talk about your feelings or do a CBT worksheet or give you skills to process. It was just, it was just non-directive play therapy. And he was having a hard time being bullied um, a year and a half later. And he was having an emotional experience and wasn't sure what to do. And the building that I work 
um, where my office is. On the outside, it says Center Point Building 2. It's nothing I ever really point out. I don't really know that children would notice that. And in his expression, he said, Mom, I just need to go back to Center Point 2. <laughs> and he, so some part of him knew that he needed to come back. And he did come back for another round of therapy. And at that point, it was actually less about him feeling space to emotionally express everything and more about him learning some containment. It was like he had had space for all the expression and that was allowed now, but but could he have boundaries and not take everything in so um, deeply that wasn't about him and could he offer himself some containment? So wow. that's what an a, example. That's a remarkable story and you're juggling so much there. Um, and uh, so the, the dynamics are incredibly complex. Um, what I wanted to sort of tease out a bit there, you did, so you mentioned some of the brain activity of the sensitive child. And um, could we just focus a little bit on that? And what is the difference between a sensitive child's perception of the world and other kids? Absolutely. Um, Elaine Aaron did a lot of research on the highly sensitive child. So I pull from her body of work mostly. She wrote the book, The Highly Sensitive Child. I found her because I, re I read the book, The Highly Sensitive Parent for myself. Like I'm getting really overstimulated in these parenting moments. What is happening? Um, and it was so relieving to learn that um, it's a personality trait. It's about 15 to 20% of the population. Um, in some research I read recently, there it might even be true that it's, a bigger percent of the population, which makes sense, like more chaos and intensity in our world, like in more sensitive systems meeting that. Um, but anyway, it's a subsection of the population. And in terms of the brain, um, from, from what I can speak to in this moment and in my course, because I had it all written out in front of me, the second module is like 45 minutes on the brain chemistry that's happening and all of the research. But the biggest points that I like to share, um, that piece that I shared earlier about many studies on the brain getting activated and staying activated for longer, the thalamus as the gatekeeper for information, literally taking in more information at any given moment. So it's like, the gates are really open. Right. And I, you know, and, and if you don't learn what to do with all of that, it's a lot to take in. It's like you need more staff at the gate to help manage things. Um, yeah. Also, there was some research on the insula, which the seat of consciousness being more active. Um, and um, and one other study that that I like to um, referred to, and, and I can share specifics if it's helpful or if, or if anyone's interested, was where highly sensitive people were asked to look at L's and T's shaped in different ways um, on a computer screen and to pick out the, the, like the L's and the T's separately to separate them. And so highly sensitive people were much more efficient at the task. Like they did it very quickly and accurately, but they became more stressed. So, so what this looks like, then the non-sensitive person. So what this looks like in, in a child, for example, is often highly sensitive children um, are gifted and do really well in school and kind of hold it together, but their stress levels are building and building and building and building because of all of that brain activation. And if they don't, if they aren't met in that and they don't understand what's happening in their brain, 
they can kind of just be on all the time and get really overwhelmed, really overstimulated. Um, and ultimately, I think be, get misdiagnosed for a whole bunch of things because they just don't know what to do with what's happening with that depth of processing, sensing the subtle, just like kind of em emotionally feeling all the things and then having that overstimulation. Right, yeah. yes. Yes, it's that, that that flood of information also that 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 we're doing culturally, uh, where mm. there's, uh, I mean, one of the things uh, with my mentor uh, Ernest Rossi, we talk about the rhythms uh, and the natural rhythms and the the absolute um, uh, natural uh, uh, biological utilization of a pause. Uh, which we actually call the Altradian healing pause. It's actually a pause about every hour and a half or two. Um, and uh, taking that 10, 15-minute sort of pause there is is really important. You get changes in gene expression, you get changes in all kinds of stuff. But, of course, we don't do that. Our culture uh, has sort of said, oh, no, 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 you keep going. Uh, because when you think about it, every hour and a half or so, we we stop for a meal. We stop for a, a snack or a meal. You know, it's, it's four hours. There's reasons why we have meals every four hours and snacks every in the two hours in between. And because mm. we don't do that now. Um, in the schools, you, you go outside and it's just sit down, eat your lunch, don't run around because of this and that, instead of that thing where you just have this great pause. So for the sensitive child, th th there's this constant barrage of stuff to pay attention to, never a, a break. And so, uh, you know, that's just another thing, just from my um, uh, awareness of things, in addition to all those those wonderful things you've said, that we'd have mm. some kids just going, uh, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, yeah. And time to unwind, I think, is one of the biggest things that these children need, like real time to unwind and also mm. a knowing that if you haven't been offering time to unwind and you suddenly provide it as a parent, it might be really difficult at first because there's a lot that's been built up in the system just ready to be released. And so parents say, well, I am slowing down and giving them a few hours of attunement and we're not putting so many plans on the calendar and it just feels like chaos. And, and my experience in supporting parents of highly sensitive children is that that has that is a first step. And Perhaps they need to tend to some of that chaos that's been um, festering in isolation alone within the child in the busyness and kind of hold space for that to move through. And then eventually there's a safety that's created in more consistent time to unwind. But it's really, really hard. I For me, it's a, like I know as a sensitive person that if I have too much time on my phone and on the computer, I'm just not my best self. I'm just not... I'm just like at a baseline of dysregulation and it's it's just really difficult. It's like the addiction to the screens yeah, that, we're yeah. all, that we all face. Totally and totally can see yeah, how our culture is, um, you know, we've got so much input. And if the sensitive child has a uh, lack of inhibitory processes that uh, they're just going to absorb it all. Um, when, when you do create space though, and I'm interested in your personal experience of this when you create space do you find yourself then having to grapple with um uh ruminating because things are still going around in your head how, how do you how do you really oh, start me as a sensitive person yeah yeah well i just learned yesterday i don't know why it hadn't clicked that 
even though I teach it, it was like a new, a mentor of my husband and mine had said, you know, that fixating is a stress response that's even beyond anxiety. It's like right before fight and fight that like fixating piece. I think sometimes I get stuck there just in Uh just what comes in my lineage and the like slowing down and realizing I'm at a baseline stress response because I've been taking in so much. Mm. Um, So yeah, I, I mean, it's a journey and, (laughs) and more, even more actively in the past day or so I'm like, wow, I'm really seeing this. Like it's a, it's not true. It's a, it's a stress response of my brain being wound up. Hmm. Right. Um, Right. Yeah, and that, and that is the, the the thing we're talking very simply about stuff. The that the, the whole idea of the stress response, uh, sort of, uh, it developed through being you know attacked by the saber tooth tiger, uh, yeah. as I say jokingly. But the whole idea was to bring your attention into a, a, a fine point because it was a really good idea to be paying attention to the saber tooth tiger or the big woolly bear, as 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 Robert Sapolsky says, uh, uh, because there's no point sort of going, oh, big woolly bear, look, squirrel, you know, <laughs> the whole. But then when you, if you're in a situation where there's this this chaotic um, uh, sort of stuff going on around, if you open your vision out, of course, what happens is exactly what you've been saying. Okay, I open my vision out and I open up and suddenly there's 50 things. Uh, at least I was only being, you know, engaged with with one. So there's a this hmm. this this um thing we talk of so often of of this entity that, that has organized itself over a, a lengthy period of time still isn't quite knowing how to manage with that thing out there that we've we've organized that 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 socio-cultural um uh, uh creation um uh, and evolutionary development that's gone beyond the body so getting the getting back and this authentic thing you talk about uh, a, a lot uh, and and utilize there it covers a lot of territory we can we can use that word over so many different aspects and uh, so this is some um, it's tenuous living in this world in many in many ways. Yeah, and it's really going against the grain to do the opposite. Like because just today this was really active for me. It was noticing a slight it wasn't a really triggered state. Like I'm still answering emails and thinking about what needs to happen, but just slightly notice noticing that fixating like oh, I'm just kind of overthinking this one situation. I must be in a little bit of a triggered state. So literally, Mm. even though I teach this to parents, it was so different being taught to me. One of those moments where like, oh, it was like, I had just read, um, Raven Wells is his name, his handout that said like, here's what you do if you're in the slightly triggered response. And one of the things was sensory deprivation, go lay down with an eye mask on and earplugs. And even though I had just had some coffee, so it wasn't going to be nap time and I didn't have much time. I just did it. And I was like, 15 minutes later, I was like, oh, it's actually like 90% of the swelling just went down. Yep, that, that's your ultradian pause. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Which is why I brought up, you know, ruminating, because sometimes if you if if you step aside and, you know, try to, you know, take that pause, um, that just gives more opportunity, um, you know, my experience with, with sensitive people to, um, you know, go even deeper in the in the ruminating of the thing that was that was upsetting um do you and i'm imagining that you've you've had to focus on something alternative that's a great that's a great point i think there's sometimes the perspective that 
distracting is avoiding and we shouldn't do it. I actually support a lot of parents in helping their sensitive kids find a distracting experience that puts them into a flow state. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though some textbooks would say, have the child sit with the feeling for this very reason. I think that for sensitive people, sometimes we, sometimes we need a distraction with something creative and healthy. Um, and so something artistic or whatever, you know, or I was just also working on a photo project for a few minutes today that really got me out of the thinking mind and the work mind and into the love for my family and that kind of thing. So I actually think having something, reading a book, it seems so basic, especially for therapists that are reading advanced theory, but sometimes it really is as simple as putting an eye mask on listening to music, Mm, having something like that, or reading a book and taking you to another channel. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting. You just just actually brought in, uh, 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 I mean, one one of the things that always fascinates me is, and I suppose it's, again, coming out of, you know, my long years in acting, but also my family have been writers and, and language has been a part of our of our story, is is when you listen for these interesting words and the correlations, suddenly the stories come out because that very thing you're saying, uh, now, you know, uh, don't be distracted, uh, focus in. And we were just talking about focusing in can be a very problematic thing because it then triggers all kinds of senses of stress and 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 distresses we're going on. So, uh, so I, I'm. I mean, my personal feeling is that we've actually, uh, and I think this is what uh, work like you're doing and Lisa Dion, various play therapists and other things are doing, is that therapy needs to be re-examined in the nature of the way we do it. Uh, and there are times to focus, but there are times to broaden and expand. People call it extra- uh, distraction. I call it broadening and expanding. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if that's driving you crazy, let's do a painting and let's play mm-hmm. in the tunnels. Let's let's um, get some toys and 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 see where they land up in the sand tray. All this that's- stuff, yeah, where the where the work is still going on, mm-hmm. but not in this cognitive focus. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I would get in trouble for saying this from someone. I don't know who. That's my thing of will I be in trouble? <laughs> but I I wanted to become a registered play therapist and I did all the hours and I couldn't do it. Like I just couldn't be a part of the thing that has a set of rules. That's just part of my journey. I, I threw away the papers that I was like, okay, I'm free to just explore. And that was so freeing to, to get to be a play therapist and find my own way with it. With, and, and that's not to say for some people like that is absolutely the map is having that support within that system. But but for me, it was a rule book that I wanted to explore outside of. Um, and so I, I feel like that's part of what has given me space in my practice to figure out what really works for the families that I support. And in attracting a lot of sensitive kids with parents that have some stuck points that are blocking them from fully um, providing what their child needs, really, because... Elaine Aaron says to have an exceptional child, you have to have an exceptional child. Like the the highs and the lows, you the, and the like amazing impact that sensitive people can have on society and the intense feelings. Like you have to learn how to support that. Um, and so in my practice, I've been able to start requiring. I always had the piece where I would do parent coaching a little bit after each session, but I've also been requiring that parents learn about the highly sensitive child and learn about the brain and the nervous system and, and be willing to look at their own stuck points. Um, And as scary as it was to make that a requirement, 
like 99% of the feedback I've been getting is thank you. We needed, we kind of needed like a coach, you know, paternal figure here, like just in that binary way of you're looking at that way. It's like that kind of energy to come in and say like, this is what's happening for the parents. Totally. And I I totally get what you're saying about um, rules to it. You've done the study, you know, the theory. And so you know enough to then break the rules and to, you know, when you need to and be authentic. And it's the same as like, you know, I've been in a situation, I'm just remembering one uh, with a client in, in, in a room, very uncomfortable. And, you know, she was uncomfortable. I said, well, let's, let's just walk down the street and go to the cafe, you know, and other therapists would think, what, no, you can't go walking down the street with your client and and in a public space and cafe and have a chat. But no, that was the, the exact right thing um, for that moment. Um, and I was confident enough and, and knew enough to know how to break what the so-called rules, you know, to, to be effective. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and in this beautiful spot, Matt, and I know there's, there's, there's more to say, but I, I'm coming in thinking there's a few rules. Uh, and one of the rules is we can't go too long. <laughs> <in our Yeah. laughs> podcast. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know there's a million things more to say and, and um, you know, there's stories and I'm thinking of, of more, but we kind of seem to have a time frame with the podcast where, where people have had enough and we're getting around that time. And I, I'd love to talk to you uh, again and do some more and, mm. and, and, you know, I, and we've talked about, hopefully we'll get something in the magazine from you, which will be so people can contemplate it uh, on the written word. But for now, I mean, before we just sort of jump off, uh, is there something you, you want to wrap up or is there something we've missed uh, that um, you're, you're urging, you know, burning to sort of say, let's let's sort of get that that done now and we'll we'll bring this up to a close. I'm just really grateful and in awe of the world we live in that we can have this podcast while you're in Australia yeah. and I'm here and yeah. I was actually born in England. I have cousins in Australia. I studied abroad in New Zealand. I feel a connection to those parts of the world and um and just I'm just in amazement and in awe of this moment. And I'm really, yeah, honored to be here. I there's so much more I could say about the highly sensitive child. And I'm really if anyone is curious to take a look at my course or learn from me, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you have clients who are parents that would be interested, um, and maybe I don't know if there's a space in the notes, but I have a discount code I can share just with your listeners um, for twenty oh, yeah. percent, like that kind of thing. But no, but, please, that's something yeah. actually we have we have forgotten yeah. to do. You're absolutely right. Glad you brought that up. Is your course, and people yes. can go and on the website, and that's at um, uh, rootedrhythm.com. Yeah, rootedrhythm.com/slash/course. I made a discount code that's capital letters um, science of psych um, for twenty percent off any of the payment plans and. And truly, it's been because I have a background in social work. I um, it's been really important to me. There's about 50 parents that are in the course now since I launched it in October, and and all ranges of socioeconomic status. So if you or a client are really interested, but even with that 20% off discount code, it doesn't feel like something that's doable. I would really love to have a conversation and and support you in whatever you can pay. And um, I'm just really, really excited that this course came out of me. It was like, I woke up one morning and I realized that all of the notes I had taken from these parents I had been coaching for six months were, it was a curriculum. I just like copy and pasted the the notes that were working for them into a Google doc, which became a 90 page Google doc over nine months after that. 
And it was just this really amazing creative process um, of, of, yeah, birthing yeah. it really. That's yeah. brilliant, and and Matt, we'll have that in the show notes, and and uh, and, and we'll put that. And for those looking at the YouTube, you'll you'll see that we've got an under thing underneath, and then we'll have that in the notes below. Uh, uh, Sophie, it can't thank you enough for being with us, and and as you say, we're in awe too. Uh, always, it's just like uh, it's, uh, we forget that we can't go down the street and have a cup of coffee with you, um, <laughs> but we're very very glad to have this this virtual um, uh, opportunity to chat around the table. Thank you yeah. so much. And thank you for the work that you're doing to to help um, people like me share their work. Thank you so much, Sophie. And uh, looking forward to catching up an, another time further down the track. That would be amazing. Wow, Richard, that was fantastic. What a what a great what great insights into being authentic and and working with uh, sensitive, not only sensitive children, sensitive people. Well, yes, it's the it's that thing of the therapist who brings their own experience. So, mm. she, so she found herself in this sensitive child area. And, of course, so many therapists will say, I had a particular personal issue. It might have been a personal sensation. It might have been an interpersonal issue in their lives that brought me to study. But the study itself has expanded them. And uh, and she's talking about her own expansion. She's still young. (laughs) I mean, I say that. But, uh, you know, we we were talking to her kids, you know, uh, five and seven, I think she was saying. So there's there's a lot more to learn, and she's right in the middle of it. So I I look forward to talking to her again about uh, uh, several of the other things that that are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we will get it back on, and there's a bunch of other things that we're going to talk about. Um, So in the show notes, you will find uh, links to her website and to her course. Um, so you want to check out her tuned in um, parenting course there. And uh, she has a, a 20% off uh, offer. And again, that coupon for 20% off will be in the show notes. It's just a science of psych if you're interested in, in jumping onto that course. Brilliant. But I think we better we better go. Uh, just remember, support us, uh, join up, uh, become members, uh, jump in and have a look. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.